0: Please remain standing and pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, now and quicken the Word of God. Make it living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the separating of soul and, and spirit. Lord, come down, empower, Holy Spirit, and speak directly to our hearts. Give us a word from you this morning. For those who are thirsting for the living God, please Please quench their thirst. And for those of us, Lord, who have been parched parched so long that we never thirst at all, grant us the gift of thirst for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If if you're one of those folks who's suspicious of organized religion, well, that's why we're here for you. We can uh, cure your fear of organized religion by bringing some disorder to this morning. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of new to this now. I uh, wanted to let you know that we are actually in a sermon series on Christian anthropology. That sounds kind of odd in our ears. Why are we talking about that? Well, Christian anthropology simply means what does the Bible have to say about what it means to be a human being? And so we're winding down that series, the 2018 summer series of, on Christian anthropology. Next Sunday will be the, the last Sunday, unless something unusual happens. Next Sunday will be the last Sunday in the series. And in this series, we're seeking to answer the question, to address the question of what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say that it means to be a human being? And as we've stated almost ad nauseum, nearly all of the points of friction between authentic biblical Christianity and our surrounding secular culture deal with issues about what of what it means to be a human person. The real conflicts between the Scriptures and the church and the, the secular surrounding culture aren't based so much on what we believe about... Listen, not so much on what we believe about God, but what we believe about humans. That's where the real conflicts come into play. And one of the key points of distinction between... The biblical and secular stories, the biblical story and the secular story of humanity has to do with this. Are you ready? It is where do we find, where do we locate the true self? Where is the true self located? Central to being human is a sense of personal identity. Now, I have covered this subject on multiple occasions, and if you want to hear another take on this, I would recommend you go back and listen to the sermon for Christ the King Sunday back on November twentieth, two 2016. All these things are online. You could go back and listen to them. In fact, I've I've spoken so often about this that uh, some people might say that I am a one-note Samba, and if that's true, then get ready for your Samba lesson because we need to come back to this again. This morning, I want us to look at sort of three ways that people search for true identity, for the authentic self. Three main ways people have tried to determine what it means to be me, to be myself, a sense of self. How is that achieved? Now, these categories are not new to me. I I took them from someone else who probably took them from another person, but I think this is a helpful way of categorizing the search for personal identity. Now, the first way we can do it is we can look outward to find our identity. We can look outward for identity. And the second way is that we can look inward for identity. And the third way is that we can look upward for identity. And I'm gonna try to explain what I mean by each of those categories. You see, traditional cultures, traditional cultures find the location of one's personal identity by looking outward. What do the family or the tribe or the village, or the larger society, have to say about who I am. I find my identity by the people around me telling me who I am and what my life is supposed to be like. Now, the problem with this traditionalist way of finding identity, although it can be very, uh, it can be very secure, very affirming in many ways, the problem is it can become suffocating and stultifying and stunting. It can leave us permanently stuck in a certain social strata or a certain social group or a certain profession. If you are a peasant or a crofter, you will always be a peasant or a crofter in a traditional society. You couldn't change your class by just trying harder or making more money, if that was even possible. All you have to do, if you want to see this at work, is just look at some of the English language names that we encounter on a daily basis. If your last name is Weaver, then surprise, that's probably what your family did for generation after generation. You wove cloth. And if you wanted to become a potter or a blacksmith, Pat, if you wanted to be a blacksmith, Guess what? You can't because you're a weaver, so go weave. Or if you're a potter, then go make pots. Or if you're a wainwright, then go make some wains. A wain is a wagon, by the way. If your family were carpenters or farmers, you were pretty much stuck there. In fact, many people who voluntarily immigrated to America from other countries came precisely because they had no future where they were other than what their traditional society demanded of them and they were looking for an opportunity to have a different identity than what was being conferred upon them by the external tribe or family group or society. Does that make sense? Now, in contrast to traditional cultures, cultures shaped by the Western Enlightenment, and we don't have time to go into all of what that means, but we are the descendants of that Western Enlightenment movement. We tend to look where? Not outward to society. We tend to look inward, inward to find the true self. This is particularly true of the United States, a nation that was forged in the very part of the 18th century Enlightenment thinking movement. In our society, we believe that our true selves are found not in relationship with a society or a tribe or a family or a tradition or even from religion, but by, listen, looking deep into our own desires. Those those inner desires, those passions. Follow your passion, which is horrible advice, (laughs) It might might be some encouragement, but some of my passions are really bad. I don't want to do that. We look to, to our inner desires, our inner passions, our inner ambitions to find our true selves, and then, after finding those inner desires, passions, ambitions, it is actually we feel like our duty, we are beholden to express that true inner self no matter what anybody else says the only heroic narrative left in the culture of authenticity which is what we're in right now is this inner quest to find and then the inner quest to find and then express our true selves and that's what most of us believe i don't care how mom and dad or society or religion or my body or the state would define me in order for me to be true to myself I have to find my inner me, inner person, and live out that truth. Your rules don't have the right to define me. You can't tell me who I am. For me to be authentic, and that's what we are very concerned with in this culture of looking deep within to find the authentic self. In order for me to be authentic, I have to find the true me, follow my dream, fulfill my passions. And every single one of us in this room has been relentlessly, I've said this phrase before relentlessly catechized to believe this idea. From the time you begin to understand the language through preschool, on Sesame Street, I don't know if, uh, I guess Dora the Explorer, you know, all that um, wild cracks, you know, whatever you're watching. At at age four, you are being taught this all the way through grade school, graduate school, and in every other area of our life. We are taught it from kindergarten, throughout our whole lives, in books, and popular music, and movies, that's probably the most effective means, through the news media and in the classroom. The idea that I have to look inward, are you following me? The idea that I have to look inward to find, in order to construct my identity... The idea that I have to look inward to construct, to erect my own personal identity is so deeply believed, it is almost unchallengeable. And even though I am challenging it this morning, I would say eight out of ten of us will go right out of here and keep on believing it. Because it's just in the air we breathe and the water we drink. It's so hard to change that story. But in contrast to the traditionalist view that looks outward and the Enlightenment view, the Enlightenment story that looks inward, the Christian story says that the self, and this is so critical, so if you haven't listened to anything else, please listen to this, the self is found not by looking outward to my society, not by looking inward to my inner passions, but in a relationship with God, in other words, looking upward. Looking upward. Here is a big idea alert. Are you ready? I'll make the noise. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <coughs> Here's a big idea alert. The self, are you ready? The self is not located within me. The self. My self really is not located within me. But in the nexus, okay, what's that? In, in the point of interconnection between God's gracious. Self-giving love for me and my response of self-giving love in return to God. Let me repeat that. Where is my true self located? It is located at that point of interconnection, that point where God's gracious self-giving love for me and my response of self-giving love back to God where those overlap. That's where the true self is found. And almost none of us have ever heard that. The key passage for this idea is what we heard from Jesus' words in Matthew 16 this morning. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life... For my sake, we'll find it. For what will it profit a person if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a person give in return for his soul? So how does Jesus say we are to find our true selves? How do we find our true life? First, by laying down, listen, you got to lay it down, lay down the faults autonomously constructed. In other words, self-constructed self. Laying that down because that self (coughs) is a jumbled mishmash. Word for the day, mishmash. It is a jumbled mishmash of conflicting conflicting and incoherent appetites, desires, and self-generated, listen, self-justifying stories. In other words... My inner, If I look inwardly into myself, and I've got all these roiling desires and appetites, I've got to construct a story that justifies expressing those. That's self-constructed, self-construction. We have to lay that down. And after we lay that down, then we embrace the self that Christ wants to give us. So here's a point that you need to make if you're writing something down. For for Christians, we believe that our personal identity, we believe that the self, ready, is a gift. It's not something, it's not our personal project. This goes back to the Reformation teaching, that we are not saved by our works, but by the grace of God. We're not saved by bootstrapping ourselves into being right in right relationship with God. Being in right relationship with God is a gift from God. And in the same way, our true self is a gift from God. And it's better than any self we could construct ourselves. We embrace the self that Christ wants to give us by taking up the cross, which again is that sense of abandonment of my life to Jesus, a cross is a place of execution, is a place of death. I'm abandoning, the person who is carrying a cross is a person who's saying, I'm about to go give up my life. Carrying my cross and following Jesus. Here's the key to the Christian idea of personhood. I'm going to help you understand this in a little bit deeper level in just a minute. But here's the key to, to the Christian idea of personhood. We find our true selves in relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, we falsely believe we must construct and preserve ourselves by some sort of inner exploration. Climb every mountain. You want me to stop? <laughs> Ford every stream, follow every rainbow till you find your dream. I'm not going to do that ever again, promise. And if we don't do that, we think, if we're not doing that, we think we will have a shallower... Weaker, less authentic self. But Jesus says that's not true. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, here's, here's the connection I made. I was thinking about this. I was hiking this past week. <clears throat> and um, and uh, I was Brandon was with me. He was there to help identify where the body was if I, if I toppled over.
1: <laughs> uh, he and my
0: best friend, Greg Jinks were conspiring, though, to, uh, to take my, my gear if that did happen, so they were gonna divide that up amongst themselves. But uh, because Brandon is 18 and I'm 56, um, we weren't walking in the same place a lot of the times. And uh, sometimes he was way ahead of me, maybe sometimes I was ahead of him. But anyway, I had some time to think about this. And most of you know that I have a German Shepherd named Ranger, right? You know my dog, some of you do. He looks almost exactly like a wolf because he is essentially a wolf He's very old now, and his time with us is sadly coming to an end soon, probably. But one of the things that Ranger has showed me is how a true self is formed. Listen, a true self is formed and exalted and expanded in relationship. If Ranger did not have me in his life, (coughs) if he were a feral dog... And by the way, I will say this. One of the great things about having a dog is when you come home... They are so glad to see you. Cats are like, oh, it's you again. <laughs> Dogs are like, it's the second coming. <laughs> he has arrived. The parousia is, among, is upon us. <clears throat> so, and he's still that way. But if Ranger did not have me in his life, if he were a feral dog, he would be completely driven by instinct. Like every other wild dog in the world, He would have no discernible personality other than the drive to eat, to protect himself, and to mate. He would probably be very dangerous to be around if you met him on the street or in the wild. But because I have extended my love to Ranger and welcomed him into our family, Ranger has what dogs don't have when they are wild. He has mastery over his basic instincts he can deny himself in order to please his pack lisa and me and yes those grandchildren too he even has this is amazing and you know what i'm talking about if you have a dog like this ranger has something that no animal in the wild has somehow he has a sense of humor he does if you have a dog and you're living with you know what i'm talking about he is a clown And he knows he's a clown. He has a sparkle in his eyes. He has what no wild dog can have, Ranger has a name. Ranger has a name. And because I have conferred upon him a name, his dogness, his dogness, has been stretched so far that he has something like a sense of his own identity, something an animal in the wild never has. And this is only because he is in relationship with me. Ranger is, in a way that no wolf or wild dog is, on a certain, yes, non-human level, but Ranger is self-aware. He is something he cannot be outside of his relationship with me. Here's the connection. All of this is possible because Ranger has, in one sense, denied himself, denied his basic programming as a wolf, and through his relationship with me has become something that it would be impossible for him to be if left to himself, if he were to look inward and find his own self. And the same is true for you and I who follow Jesus Christ. When we deny ourselves and follow Christ, we are brought into a relationship in which our identity is not crushed, it is not erased, but it is taken to a level of personhood, of peace and joy and security and self-awareness that we could not experience on our own. You see what I'm saying? But there's a problem. You see, we fear dependence on a relationship with God for our identity. You see, in one sense, that's what the Genesis story we heard about the fall of humanity was about. We fear it because if myself is located in relationship with another person, then what if that person does not truly love me or does not want what's really best for me? If I am dependent on that relationship for my identity, that means I am essentially vulnerable. And Satan says this to the man and the woman. He's talking to the woman, but the Scripture says, and her husband who was with her, so they were both there. Satan says, you can't trust God with your identity." Listen to what it says. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent said, you will not surely die. For God, Listen, listen to what he says. For God knows that when you eat of the fruit of the garden, when you eat of it, your eye, God knows if you do it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. What's he saying? He's saying, God is holding back what's really good for you. You can't trust God. You can't trust Him with your identity. You can't trust, you need, do you see, do you get it? The tempter says you need to turn away from that relationship with the Creator and turn inward on yourself, be independent, be autonomous, then you can really transcend your limitations. You can be like God. He says, God doesn't want you to be all you can be. He doesn't really love you and want what is best for you. He doesn't want you to be self-actualized. You can't trust Him with your identity. You have to trust yourself. You need to literally take matters into your own hands. But brothers and sisters, Jesus reveals a God who will never abuse us never hurt us, never deny us what is truly good for us. He is someone who shows us that God would be willing and has, in fact, died for all of us in Jesus Christ. We we serve a God who loves us enough that He laid His life down for us. God's desire is not to crush our identity. It is for human flourishing. Jesus said in John chapter 10, listen to this. Jesus said that that... Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they, you, may have life and have it, Abundantly. What's God's desire for you? Not to erase your identity, not to erase yourself, not to eliminate your personhood. He wants you to have life and have it abundantly. And then the very next thing Jesus says when He's giving His bona fides, why you can trust Him with your identity, is this verse 11 I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So when Jesus says that we are to deny ourselves, to lose our lives, to find our lives, he is not saying he's going to erase yourself. Self-denial is not the same thing as self-abnegation. Abnegation. I can say it. Abnegation. It is not self-erasure. That's the teaching of Buddhism. That's not the teaching of Jesus. Rather, it is the denial of the desire, listen to me, it is the denial of the desire to center my being by looking inward to my own appetites, agendas, and desires. It means to give myself away to find life. Jesus' goal for us is fulfillment in Him, not self-emptying just for the sake of being empty. He says, empty yourself of what is false, so that I can fill it with what is true. Jesus wants us to be full to overflowing. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts... Thirsty, needy, searching... If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. One of the coolest things about hiking in the Appalachians this past week was we would come across from time to time a pipe stuck in the mountain with water gushing out for no good reason whatsoever, except the mountain is just plumb full of water. It has to come out. It's called a spring. And I've got to tell you guys, I got back to Winston-Salem. I love Winston-Salem, but I took a drink of Winston-Salem water and I said, this is nasty. (laughs) I've been drinking pure mountain spring water, flowing out of the mountain, just just coming out of the mountainside. And it was so good, so fresh, so life-giving. You know what? Jesus says, If you come to me, if you believe in me, let me handle your identity. As the scripture says, you will be so full, you'll be having living water coming out of you. Now, he said this about the Holy Spirit, the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. God wants to fill you, not fill you. F-I-L-L. God wants to fill you, not erase you. He wants you to be more. He wants you to be what no dog could be left to himself. C.S. Lewis, early church father. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, St. Clive of Belfast, no less. Uh, Says this at the end of Mere Christianity, and if you want to bring that up, it's a long quote, and I want you to read this along with me. We should have just read this and gone home, sorry. (laughs) Lewis writes, Until you have given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. There must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality. But you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, in other words, looking inward, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. The real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking at him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for most For more everyday matters, even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original, whereas if you simply try to tell the truth, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Listen. This is the key passage he writes here. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. There's a prayer that is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He didn't write it. It's not found anywhere before 1910, but it certainly seems to express St. Francis's personality and thought. It's also a wonderful prayer for us to begin to offer as we seek to let Christ form our authentic selves. So would you bow your heads with me Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is discord, let me bring union. Where there is error, let me bring truth. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring your light. Where there is sadness, let me bring joy. O Master, let me not seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that one receives, it is in self-forgetting that one finds, It is in pardoning that one is pardoned. It is in dying that one is raised to eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you stand with me at this time as we confess our faith as as it is contained in the words of the Nicene Creed?